all welcome to Pentapolitics from Mr. Watson. I am most certainly forever and eternally your humble host, Christian Watson. It is so phenomenal to be with you today on this Wednesday night edition of Pentapolitics, in which we shall discuss the chaos that has been unfurling all across of Kenosha, Wisconsin, whether it does with the Jacob Blake shooting, which directly translated into the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting, which if you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it, don't worry. And we'll also talk about what that means and implicates presidential politics and also for the culture of America right now and the culture of the world. Because as we saw with George Floyd's unfortunate death, his murder, I would say, which was much more clear-cut and much more condemnable than the Mr. Jacob Blake case, what we saw with that was a worldwide release of passionate, fiery energy, which demanded what protesters around this globe saw as a just conclusion to the injustice of Mr. George Floyd's death. That's what we saw a few months ago. What we're seeing now, we're seeing protest, we're seeing fervor, we're seeing anger, not on the global scale as we saw a few months ago, but we are seeing um, the shadow of Mr. Floyd's death kind of haunt any other occurrence uh, that involves a young black man getting shot or a black man at all getting shot by the police. And the shadow of everyone else who has died that way, regardless of the particular circumstances of their case, whether it would be Breonna Taylor, whether it be Freddie Gray, whether it be Michael Brown, regardless of the particular circumstances of their case, the shadow of all of them continues to haunt the every single shooting and inform how certain individuals perceive every single shooting as a continuum of tragedies that continue to happen and happen almost in sync with each other with no break. That's a flawed way of thinking about it. But unfortunately, this is where we are in our culture right now as it relates to these officer-involved shootings. There is no nuance. There's no differentiation. If, the, if there is two elements, if the cop is white and the victim is black, those two things are enough to form an idea, a narrative, an opinion of what happened, and then drive that idea, narrative, and opinion home in the streets, in the court of public opinion, before due process has happened, before the evidence has came out, before we can ensure the truth is certain in this case. Those, those two factors result in collective thinking, collective action, and similarly collective despair and doom that emerges from such haphazard assertions. So, in the spirit of finding the truth, as philosophy is concerned, because philosophy is primarily concerned with finding the truth, unless you believe that truth is relative to everyone's opinions and truth doesn't matter. In that case, you probably shouldn't be watching me or listening to me. You probably shouldn't be listening to me on whatever device you have because that device itself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't necessarily have to work or doesn't even work necessarily. It's just working in the moment because apparently there are some intemporary circumstances that are allowing it to work. It's just... If you think like that, then you need to, this, what's happening right now in the world is the least of your worries. <laughs> but in the spirit of finding the truth, let me recount the narratives of what certain sides are saying are happening to, or happened, so to speak, to Mr. Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I will first recite the police narrative, which is pretty unimpeded by any other narrative in the fact that it gets the sequence of things correct, but the content of things is under dispute from Mr. Jacob Blake's team, legal team. Uh, so here's what happens. Here's what happened. So according to the police narrative, a woman called the cops and said that her boyfriend was on the premises and that he was not supposed to be there. This is the information that was heard on the police scanner, which many individuals on the right 
um, when it came out, used the police scanner to try to justify Mr. Blake's shooting. And so after that, the police responded to that call. Now, there is an ambiguous lapse in what happened in between the time the police got to the scene and in between the time the famous video that has been viewed millions of times that went viral began. There are, there's a lapse in those events. We don't necessarily know for certain. What the police say happened is that they tried to, um, they saw Mr. Blake on the scene. They tried to tase Mr. Blake. They tried to do certain things to make sure Mr. Blake was detained and uh, captured because apparently they had some knowledge that he had a warrant out on him and they wanted to apprehend him. And then you see Mr. Blake walking away from the cops. This is when the video begins going towards a vehicle, which is adjacent to the sidewalk, opening the door, trying to lean into the driver's side of the car, and then the cop grabbing onto him and firing seven times into his back. Now, police claim that Mr. Blake had a knife of sorts in his possession. And according to the investigation that uh, was immediately opened by the Wisconsin Attorney General, Mr. Call, a knife was found on the driver's side door right near the seat. A knife was found. And so a lot of folks are saying that this justifies the shooting because they're, I mean, look, look, when a cop is telling you to be obedient and you are resisting, then you go and you put your hands in a place that is unseen where you could possibly retrieve a weapon, the cop is justified to shoot. So that's what happened according to a lot of the police accounts. And according to Mr. Blake's lawyers, the sequence is not in dispute again. But they dispute that Mr. Blake was being either aggressive or that he possessed any sort of knife. And they have used the argument that Mr. Blake is a kind, gentle man who loved his kids and who would never, ever, ever hurt anyone. There's a problem with this as well. When you begin to endeavor in character arguments uh, to address a matter that has nothing to do with character and everything to do with the actions that transpired in that moment, you open yourself up to an attack on his character. Mr. Blake's legal team needs to consider this because it is not wise to say a man who is currently wanted for sexual assault has good character. Now, of course, we don't know if him being wanted for sexual assault, if he actually did the, did the instance, he has the right to due process as much as any of us else do. We don't know if he actually did it, but he's wanted for it. So it does bring into question the purity, the, the sanctimony, the sanctity, so to speak, of his character. That brings into serious question that, that concept. So it's best to avoid character arguments when the character of the subject is in dispute. It's, a very, it's best to avoid that. <laughs> It's best to focus on the facts of the matter, what actually occurred in that temporal moment, which is now defining a lifetime of narratives and a lifetime of sentiments towards the idea of being black in America. It's, it's important not to mix the what is temporary with what can be permanent, because sometimes that which is temporary is meant to stay in its temporal mode. It's meant to expire at some point in time. Perhaps Mr. Blake's character or what he did in the past was meant to expire at a certain point in time, but now they have interrupted the process of expiration, of growth, and they have put 
his character into the forefront, into the limelight, where they now have to try to defend him on a character level. Not a good thing. So shortly afterwards, Kenosha was on fire. Kenosha, Wisconsin, when this happened, was on fire. You had protesters destroying the public public safety building. You had protesters emulating fire trucks. You had protesters attacking used car dealerships with fire as well, burned down the entire car dealership. You had protesters going into people's homes, breaking into them, setting them on fire. It was absolute carnage. Then, as the protests continued, the Kenosha Public Safety Board, the Kenosha City Council, the Board of Administrators, begged the governor, governor of Wisconsin, who was a Democrat, for aid. And, of course, he sent an aid. He sent in about 250 National Guard men. That wasn't enough. <laughs> and the problem with his his little his disposition on that issue was that he sent them to protect public administration buildings. So private industry, private property was still ripe for the picking for the violent protest the violent rioters, not protesters at all. And if people say they're protesters or not, the violent rioters who had it set out to destroy and un- unleash the demon of carnage wherever they want, wherever they want to go. So he so <laughs> How they responded to the the first wave of this chaos was absolutely irresponsible, and it is not adhering to the principle of individual property rights, which the government is instituted to protect. No, the government wanted to protect its assets. So, of course, things kept getting worse. The government buildings were fine, of course, but things kept getting worse, which caused the Kenosha Board of Ministers to also send another letter a day or so after that asking for an increase in National Guard personnel, and their wording was, our city is under attack. We are in all-out war. This was after they had deployed a regiment of National Guard troops to protect federal property. We are in all-out war, they said. So, not only did they have to send more reinforcements, they had to draw from the National Guard of Alabama, Michigan, and one other state. And they also had to bring in federal personnel to come in and help manage the restoration of peace and civility within Kenosha, Wisconsin. And you know who he had to ask? He had to ask President Trump. And so the lesson from this – oh, let me back up. I'm, I'm actually missing a very core part. In the absence of the federal government being there to protect private property, which is one of its enumerated duties, which is one of its core duties, which it's supposed to do, but oftentimes government likes to reap property, likes to destroy property, likes to steal property, seize civil asset forfeiture in eminent domain, likes to just, just absolutely destroy, desolate property owners so they can get money. Because again, the government is parasitic. As the great writer from the 1920s, Albert J. Knox said, the government does not have anything of its own. It is a parasite, like a vampire almost. It takes, it takes, it takes, but it gives very little. When it's supposed to be giving some sort of stability to the area of individual rights. That's besides the point, kind of. Before the governor had the gumption to expand the National Guard presence and to make sure that property owners are protected, several small militias formed in Kenosha, and they protected private property rights. A member, or a self-proclaimed member, of one of these militias was none other than Mr. Kyle Rittenhouse. 
a 17-year-old boy who lived literally minutes outside the city who was wielding a weapon that he sh- that that legally he was not allowed to possess and who was trying to protect in his words the area around uh, Kenosha. So, Mr. Rittenhouse uh, is getting news because he uh, shot two people fatally and injured one person. And he's, of course, he is the perfect scapegoat for those who want to assume that white supremacy is this infectious force across America that is motivating people to violence. They want to assume that white supremacy is the sort of, sort of uh, scepter of most people who dare wield a gun or dare be in a militia or dare profess an allegiance and adherence to the higher order values of natural rights and property rights. A lot of times there are sophists in the media that wants to conflate those pure values and these pure actions, which are manifestations of the adherence to these values, they want to conflate them with vices. Because white supremacy is obviously evil. But the moment the Kyle Rittenhouse story broke out, almost a lot of people were comparing him to a white supremacist. And it was immediately racialized. The Kyle Rittenhouse story was racialized. It was racialized. <laughs> racialized and politicized, as I probably said. Although these days, there's not much of a difference. So what happened was, and even ABC News admitted this in an article, Kyle Rittenhouse was running away from someone. That person was pursuing him trying to throw things at him. And that person, when they got close to him, was shot, and he died. It was shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Then more people, someone screamed, that guy shot someone. More people began pursuing him, and he eventually, he was running away. Kyle was running away while this was happening. He was not, as some folks are suggesting, running towards trouble. He was doing his very best to escape the specter of trouble, the idea of trouble, by running away. Because he could see, at this point, after he had shot someone, okay, look, I already ran away at first, but I was forced to shoot someone. Now I'm running away again, so I'm not forced to shoot anyone, and so I can just get out of here. That was probably what was going through his mind. That's what his actions indicate. But they kept going after him. He got on the ground. Well, they He basically was, he fell to the ground, and, of course, he was cornered, and he shot. He shot. And, of course, another person got shot and died. And, of course, another person else got shot, but they were just injured. Then he walked away, and there's that famous photo, that famous video image of him standing before the caravan of SWAT that were there, were responding to, the, to, to murmurings that there was a shooting, and just putting his hands up, and them just driving around and just going away. Now... Again, the moment this story was covered amongst a lot of publications, almost every single publication focused on the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse was a militia member or that he liked, he wanted, he aspired to be a police officer. You know, the left does not escape the idea that they hate law enforcement by mentioning law enforcement. To, uh, to indict a kid of whom the details of what he's being indicted for are largely unknown or at that point were largely unknown. We now know that, of course, this guy was defending himself. Kyle Rittenhouse was 100% defending himself. 
There is no way, if you look at the video and look at the official reports that have been stated by mainstream news, ABC, CBS, all of them, that you could deduce this guy was acting maliciously or he was out to kill people. He was not. He was a kid who shouldn't have been out in those protests in the first place, who probably should have taken the onus of protecting private property and shifted it over to the Kenosha militias, who were actually doing a good job at that, and then left and gone back to his house to do something else. There are a lot of things Mr. Rittenhouse could have done better. But one thing you cannot say is that Kyle Rittenhouse was a mur- as, as a murderer or that he was someone who was maliciously trying to take lives, reap souls in that moment. That is not true. That is not what the evidence and his actions indicate. It's unfortunate that someone died. It's unfortunate that Mr. Rittenhouse felt the onus of protecting property that was not necessarily his to protect. It's unfortunate that at 17 years old, he is already motivated by this idea of being a warrior, being a hero, the sort of hero complex. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but it's not condemnable. It's not, it's not a vice to want to be a hero. It's not a vice to want to save things. It's not a vice to want to stymie destruction. It's not a vice to actually, you know, love certain ideas and want to ensure those ideas are protected. It's not a vice. It's anything. It's a virtue. But how you manifest virtues will determine the results and the consequences of those virtues to your life, my friends. So yes, Mr. Rittenhouse defended himself. But the context in which he had to defend himself should not have been so, in my opinion. But regardless, you have someone there who is motivated by a desire to stymie economic and social calamity that is being harbored, that is being brought forth by angry rioters, and he had to unfortunately defend himself by taking life. Unfortunate, but it happened. Tucker Carlson had some colorful words to say about Mr. Rittenhouse, which were not all too outrageous, but they drew a lot of scorn, and everyone was like, you know, get rid of Tucker Carlson, uh, boycott his sponsors, everything like that. And it's just, it's this idea, again, this idea of the narrative. Kyle Rittenhouse, from the offset, onset, was seen as this overly belligerent guy who wanted to be a part of the police and who was in militias. All those three, overly belligerent, police, militia. Those three values there are kryptonite for most People who think in the terms, in the collectivistic, identity-based terms that a lot of the left thinks in. And when I say the left, I mean the activist elements of the left. There are, the left is a very broad spectrum, of course. I don't, I don't mean to speak monolithically here. It's a broad spectrum. But right now, the political left, the activist elements of it, are currently driving the story about this entire shooting. Which is, and then, So I have to address them that way. I, I, some of my listeners may say, Christian, the left's not, the left is not a monolith. I agree with you. They're not. And the right's not either. No, not, not at all. No. But both of them are doing a few things. And you, when you have to, you have to find a way to quantify how you're going to address either of them. And I think the best way to do so is simply to refer to them monomalously. That's just what I do. But Kyle Rittenhouse was, already painted as someone who would have the identity of an abuser, of, so, of a sower of injustice. Uh, that's what he was painted as. 
And so when you put an idea of someone into the forefront of someone's mind, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is very simple, my friends. You're going to judge them by those ideas as opposed to judging them by what actually happened. This is primarily why identity is, is a very caustic thing these days, because it causes you to judge someone by their arbitrary characteristics as opposed to judging them by who they are as a person. Judge Mr. Rittenhouse not by what he wanted to be, a cop, or not by the fact that he, you know, he, he wanted to be in a militia. Judge him by what occurred in the circumstance that is causing outrage. If, you, if more people did that, there would be less of Kyle Rittenhouse as a villain and more of this is a guy who is defending himself. And you can agree, you can disagree or agree with the context that existed within his self-defense. That's not a problem. It's not a problem. But that's not what they're doing. They are attacking this boy. They are lancing this boy. They are calling him all sorts of names. They are villainizing him. I, even if he is acquitted, which I fully expect he will be, because the great Len Wood, who represented, uh, who was worked in the Atlanta Olympic bombing case, represented Mr. Nicholas Sandman, and who just got a massive payoff from the media because they slandered him ruthlessly for a narrative they constructed as well. Mr. Len Wood's representing him. I have every reason to believe this boy will get off. When he does, I think it's going to be very hard for him to get a job, to actually exist in modern day society, uh, even. On a micro level, I think it'll be hard for him because most people already have an image of who this boy is before his life has even truly began. That's a curse. It's a curse that hopefully Mr. Rittenhouse can break one day. But a sort of broader narrative, a broader theme over the Kyle Rittenhouse story is how militias themselves are demonized. Militias themselves are demonized and called all sorts of things. And, and Joe Biden himself came out and said, the he is a problem with the militia movement. And there are Americans saying, why are there militias? Why, why are there militias in our street? This should not be so. We need to have enforcement. So first of all, guys, what are what is the federal government? What are the armed personnel of the federal government? Oh, let's be a little more specific, okay? Let's be a little bit more clear. What is the National Guard? The National Guard is a militia. The only difference between a civilian militia and a National Guard militia is that that National Guard are not necessarily civilians. They are arms of state governments. Not necessarily the level of the military, but they are arms of state governments that are meant to be deployed in times of disaster or, or great crisis, which the Kenosha riots were times of great crisis. That's what they are. A civilian militia are simply people who take that same principle but do not have the official emblem, the official insignia of the government embossed upon their actions. That is what people find disconcerting. <laughs> this idea that if you are not officially sanctioned by Uncle Sam, you are doing something wrong, is an idea that is mired in everything but logic and reason. It is an idea that is mired in the desire for paternalism. It is an idea that is mired in the desire to see the government as the ultimate savior, the white knight of all of our issues. It is an, a desire. 
It is a desire to want to take responsibility for your own safety in your own lives, which militias reflect that sentiment, where militias reflect the Emersonian, Emersonian principle of self-reliance, of ensuring that their, their constitution, their bodies, their lives, their standards are enforced and held strong amidst chaos. That's what militias are. Now, there are some militias that are badly motivated. There are some militias that have no virtue to them, of course. There are a lot of white supremacist militias that have zero virtue whatsoever. Because white supremacists, of course. There are militias that are no good. 100%, I agree with you. There is no debate here. But the militias that we see defending property owners, when cops do not, when the military is only defending, or when the National Guard is only defending government property, they are not unvirtuous. They are genuinely, or at least their actions in that moment are not unvirtuous. I can't speak to who they are outside of those moments. But within a moment of defending someone else's property from someone who has no business trying to attack it or loot it or whatever, that is virtue. And so I am happy these militias exist. I am happy there are civilians who are willing to take upon their God-given rent of self-defense, who are willing to who are willing to postulate the truth of the Second Amendment, who are willing to postulate the truth of natural rights and defend their fellow men. I am happy to see the brotherhood and sisterhood of man manifest in such a palpable way. I am happy there are people who hold these principles to be self-evident, clear, and actionable. I am happy. And if you believe, regardless of your political disposition, if you believe that every individual in America and every individual in this world has an unalienable right to be left alone, has an unalienable right to live in solidarity with themselves, in sanctity with themselves, has an unalienable right not to be molested by a bunch of riotous bandits, then you must also, to be philosophically consistent, submit to the principle that those militias are doing something virtuous and desirable. Listen, the frontier defined what became America. The frontier was defined by people who had very little education but had a lot of grit and wit, who were individualists, who knew that that life would not come and give them luxuries. They had to work. They had to get down in the dirt and the mud. They had to mix things around. They could be mixed. They had to do all kinds of labor in the hot sun, in the scolding winter. They had to brave natural elements. They had to fight off wild beasts. But eventually they built something. They built homes, families, buildings, towns. They created localities. They harvested natural resources. And now the area where the frontier was, the Midwest and all of that, is one of the, is the, perhaps one of the most bustling economic areas in the country. And it rivals parts of the world with natural gas industry and so on and so forth. The frontier is an aspiration that we should hold in our hearts, my friends. The frontier mentality is what caused those men in 1776 to say, I am done with a British king. I am done being treated like I am some sort of serf. I am done being regarded as, as shadow. I am done and I shall rise up in the truth of my individuality, in the truth of myself, and I shall persist in that truth. And ensure that who I am as a person 
is reflected in the laws and my right to exist alone, to be left alone, that principle of negative rights shall exist in the law and that anyone else that tries to molest us in the future shall be beaten back by the virtuous tides of Americanism. That is what these militias represent in Wisconsin, my friends. Precisely that. And if you are against that, you must consider your paradigm. You must reconsider a lot of things. Because if you are against that, my friends, then you are for tyranny. Or you are indifferent towards tyranny. You can be against something without being for the opposite. I can be against prostitution without being for abstinence. Make sense? This is an example. So I say thank you to the militias. I say thank you to the people who have the goal to defend property rights. I say thank you to anyone who would dare stick up for those who are not in the government's good graces at any point in moment or in time. I say thank you to the prudent people who have been analyzing the occurrences in Kenosha, Mr. Rittenhouse, who have been moving on a fact-based measure, not in a measure that comes from emotion or a measure that comes from the desire to fill a certain political narrative. I say thank you. We need you. We love you. I want you to be more in the discussion. Because right now, a bunch of ideological thieves are running around our political discourse and taking everything they can from us, taking everything they can from the individual and giving it towards abstract, far-off, paganistic notions of systemic racism and group victimhood. Notions that do nothing to empower you, nothing to satisfy the condition of your humanity, i.e. freedom. Nothing to help you whatsoever in your, in your everyday life. Nothing to help your family or your kids. Nothing at all but to just dismember your ability to get up and go for it. Those people, we need to fight back against them with the light of the truth, my friends. So, if you were in Kenosha and you were one of those militia people... Defending businesses. Thank you. Allow the Rittenhouse case to play out as it might. But if it plays out how I suspect, it's not going to be good news for a lot of people on the left. That's just what I think. As always, guys, please subscribe. Like this video on YouTube. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you can. Please subscribe. I need it. It's just, it's very important. It keeps me going. Comment, do whatever you can. But until next time, my beautiful friends, thank you so much. And please stay pensive.